Hello, it's Annie here. You're so welcome to Changes. How are you doing? It's the end of June. Maybe you're on your way back from Glastonbury or gearing up for other festivals this summer. Thank you all for sharing the past episodes with Emily Evis and Roisin Murphy around Glastonbury Festival. This week, I have the most charming and warm and lovely guest. Her name is Grace Dent. Grace is a broadcaster, columnist, author, award-winning food critic, and now a podcaster. She regularly appears on TV shows, including MasterChef. She works for The Guardian as their restaurant critic and hosts a fab podcast called Comfort Eating. You can currently watch her hosting a new show with Ainsley Harriet called Best of British by the Sea for Channel 4. Grace is also a novelist. She's written 11 young adult fiction novels and she released a memoir a couple of years ago called Hungry, a memoir of wanting more. And it's this, her backstory, that has brought her to changes because despite living a glittering media life in London, dining in some of the best restaurants in the world and critiquing the food of Michelin star chefs, Grace is from humble working class beginnings growing up in an area called Curragh in Carlisle in the north of England. How does someone make that leap and do so whilst not dialing down her northern roots accent or personality in the process? I wanted to go beyond the food and get under Grace's skin and find out about the changes she's had to go through to become who she is today. This conversation focuses on identity and class and ambition and grief. It was an absolute pleasure to speak to Grace. I really could have done with another four hours, but this is what we got. Welcome to Changes, Grace Dent. It's really lovely to be here and yet at the same time, 10 minutes before I sat down to do this, I thought, why on earth did I choose those subjects, right? (laughs) Because they're so intimate and confessional and I thought, why didn't I just fudge it and go, (laughs) why didn't I just talk about my first job in a magazine as opposed to, yeah, I know, I hear you. I think that even with the best will in the world, the things that I want to talk about are just are true. And yeah. if they're true, right, then yeah. if they're out there, it doesn't matter. I Why mean, do I, I feel never... like I'm going to cry in this podcast already? <laughs> oh, God. So listen, this is changes. What you were referring to is the three questions that Mm. we send everyone in advance of this podcast, which is kind of some defining changes in your life. One at the start of your life, one one as an adult and one that you would maybe potentially still like to make. Um, And we normally start at Mm. the start, really. But before I do, first of all, just like, how is life? How are you? Life, right. I think that a bystander would say that my life is amazing because yeah. it kind of is you know I've, I've I've got an amazing career and I've got a fantastic partner and I live in a house in London and spend a lot of time in the lakes internally I am never quite satisfied you know that Madonna song American Life where suddenly she gives mm-hmm. an entire list of the things that she has. What does she say? I've got a lawyer and a nanny and an, and a gardener and a chef and two yeah. chauffeurs and a blah, blah. Do you think I'm satisfied? Why that was so good was because I think that that is the deep heart of not just women, but 
almost everybody that's kind of pushing and striving, you know. So am mm. I good? Yeah, I'm all right. Um, but I'm always kind of looking onto the horizon. And are you a catastrophist? When you look at the horizon, is it a glass half empty or a glass half full situ? Oh, God. My family are catastrophizers. Like, mm. you know, well, they were what's left of my family. Mm. <laughs> They're like, my family were always kind of, you can't go on the French exchange at school because you'll get there and then you'll probably get murdered by a serial killer, you know? Mm. That kind of thing. Big imaginations. Uh, but, but really, mm. and a really kind of catastrophizing would keep you, really keep you in your place, you mm. know. I am not, no, but like I do like to plan. I like a plan. I like a things to do list to bat away the catastrophes. Yeah. Not that, you know, I'm, I get up at five o'clock every morning and start making lists. Do I you? know. Yeah, I do. I love that. I mean, I'm the same as you. I thrive off a, live, a list. It's a kind of, there it is. Look at it. I write mine on those too. You know, a, yeah. a kind of life insurance envelope or something. You know, that type of vibe. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's um, yeah. At the moment, I need to email Shannon, uh-huh. my personal trainer, and I need to get rid of a chandelier which is in a box. I need to find somewhere to put it. Yeah, these are all. <laughs> Love it. Love the chandelier. Love. I know. The moment that came out my mouth, I thought, that is not a relatable thing. <laughs> but it's great. It's like, it is great because... I need it, to get rid of a chandelier. In, in the context of the book, which I've just finished, um, your memoir, it is rather wonderful that you've said that because there's so much of it is about the idea of you moving to London and getting this job and being like, am I posh now? Or do you? Like, am I different now? My This kind of identity shift. Yes. Um, Grace, I just loved your book like so much, and uh, I just loved how you wrote, and it's so unpretentious and so moving, and it just grabs you. And there's bits of it that just just ruined me, um, oh, you know. Yeah. And I'll never forget it. I was kind of photographing pages and sending it to various people that I know, one of whom is writing a memoir, probably not helpful for him. Um, uh, uh, just being like, look at this, look at this, look at this. But first of all, like, how was it writing this book, Hungry, What is what it's called? And it's um, out now for listeners. I think that people would like to hear that writing a mm. memoir about my childhood, kind of focusing on my relationship with my dad and at the same time talking through the process of losing my dad to dementia which was absolutely horrific. Uh, and I think think people would like to think that was cathartic, right? Yeah. I don't know if it was, really. I'm really glad that I got it on paper. And I'm really glad that a lot of the stuff that I wrote along the way when I was in really dark places. Mm. And all the jokes I wrote along the way, because, you know, God, look, dementia to anyone that's been around it, it kind of has to be funny sometimes because mm. you have to, if you weren't laughing, you would be out in the street screaming, right? So the stuff yeah. that happens is funny sometimes. Uh, I'm glad it's all in a book and I'm glad that my life story is in a book and that people can kind of be inspired by it or moved mm. by the whole dementia thing. But God, yeah, I, I do feel, there's a part in my book where I say that my heart still kind of is broken about my father and I 
it's kind of grows the slenderest of scabs. Yes. And then every so often I either just pick the scab off myself or the scab comes off. And all it takes is is one memory for the scab to go. Yeah. Oh God, absolutely. You know that Sting lyric, you don't get to quote Sting very often, but um, when he says message in a bottle and he throws the message in a bottle and he says, I woke up one morning and look what I saw, like a thousand million bottles r- washed upon the shore. And that's what Hungry was like because yeah. the moment it went, like the hardback went onto the shelves like my Instagram DM was just loads of people just Mm. our age just going thank you for writing this thank you for writing this oh my god thank you thank you so what you know Hungry the book isn't just about dementia it's about career and family and life and love and destiny and whatever Mm. working classness but that strand of the story I do feel like I achieved something you know Mm, mm. yeah in terms of (laughs) yeah help helping people I don't know what I achieved I just basically put a flag in the sand and went this shit is happening yeah you know yeah it's happening and the way that you talk about it again it it, there's no sugar coating it the way that you talk about it is the same as the affliction itself it's kind of deeply deeply feeling like overwhelmed and sad and angry but it's also this this moments of just total humor um, yes and God, joy has to be. and clarity oh that has to be in everything yeah. in everything you know when people say there's nothing funny about death there's nothing funny about cancer there's nothing for kind of but when you're in it when you're just in it there's always in the house something. you have to yeah you have to anybody that's listening to this now that's dealing with chemo or what these the big Mm. things that kick you up the arse in life you and your family laugh you have you just have these stupid in jokes gallows humor Mm. and it's very british as well we like to laugh Mm. so you grew up in the most northern part of northwest england that's how you describe it in the book um in curragh in carlisle what and how does carlisle still kind of run run through you like how does it still exist within you as a place um carlisle and coming from a background like that will never ever leave me it's never it's it's in me no matter how many chandeliers you've got to get rid of it does how many spare chandeliers i have (laughs) no it's never going to leave me it's still in my accent it doesn't Mm. matter how much Radio 4 tried to knock that out of me. I just, it's still in there. Uh, You know, I grew up in, I have to always try to be sensitive when I talk about Carlisle and Curragh because uh, it's where people live. It's where lots and lots and lots of real human beings live, right? And still live. Mm. And so I never like, to tell a story where it's like, well, thank God I got out of Curragh, or, you know. However, Curragh is one of the most deprived places in Britain. I think it's in the, still to this day, is in the bottom 4% of the country. Mm. Uh, And Curragh, even by Cumbrian standards, is very, very rough. So we're talking about schools that don't have a lot of success in getting their kids into higher education and all the all the things that go with it you know Mm. all the all the different things I didn't realize how working class 
I was until I actually got to London. You know, I thought, because my mother, like we were working class, we lived in a terraced street, the centre house in a terraced street. There was loads of kids, mm. loads of kids everywhere. All us playing out in the street, you know, like kind of on bikes and throwing tennis balls at windows and getting into trouble and running around the parked cars, that kind of thing. Mm. There was a lot of different type of working class people in yeah. that street. I always say the working class aren't just this kind of big mass the working class there's like 15 different classes on that street and my mother was tall blonde hair elegant and always made us feel as if we were kind of I never realized we were poor really Mm. you Mm. know I didn't think we were poor we bloody were but like I didn't know anything different there was no (laughs) you know going back when there was no internet and stuff to look at Mm. I didn't really get to compare myself to the only posh people we ever saw were the royal family on television, you know, yeah. and maybe a posh character on on Channel 4, you know, on Brookside, the middle class people on Brookside, Max Farnham. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I didn't even realise that we were that poor. Um, so, yeah, all of that is in me. My It's in my attitude to food. Mm. It's in my attitude to money. Mm. And by money... Like, I unashamedly love money, you know? Mm. I don't think money brings you happiness. I think it certainly makes things easier, you know? Mm. When middle-class people try to tell me, oh, money doesn't bring you happiness, I'm a bit like, look, sorry. I'm Look, can I just stop you there, right? Being able to get a train whenever you like because you've got money in your bank account Mm. does make you happy, you know? Mm. The The things that money brings you on a surface level does. So there's things like that within me um, that will always be a bit Curragh and Carlisle, you Mm. know. And also God to look at me. I don't look like a lot of people on telly because Mm. there's, um, you know, I've got kind of silver fillings and a slightly wonky front tooth from like NHS dentistry. And I bloody love a spray tan, you know. Yeah. I love a spray. I mean, my my spray tan is at this house constantly, right? <laughs> I am like, I I love a spray tan. Yeah. I love a high heel. I love sparkly diamonds. I like that kind of northern working class exotic look mm. where it's mm. kind of all the plates spinning at once and a push-up bra, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't do boho. Oh my God, there's an amazing line in the book about boho. I accepted that my type of working class people are really not suited to being bohemian, as bohemian really means chaotic, self-destructive, whimsical and a bit whiffy. Most North London bohemians would be a lot happier if they stopped wife swapping and got a nice to-do list on the go. Then their homes might be full of neat rows of fabric conditioned socks rather than self-involved sobbing, cat piss and orchids. (laughs) Drop the book! (laughs) Bang! Right? (laughs) That is that comes from Curragh. That comes from yeah. like yeah. You know, I'm not saying we were angels, but working class Curragh people with literally nothing love mm. fabric conditioner. Mm. They love neat rows of of fabric conditioned socks on radiators. You know, this whole kind of keeping everything together. You yeah. know, as a woman, you're like. You're, you're a terrier, you know, you're up and you're doing stuff and you're in everything and you're in control. You're like titanium. Mm. And then, you know, I started kind of meeting these like bohemian people who'd had everything handed to them on a plate. And they're just mm. like standing in like a kind of whiffy smock waiting for their mother to give them some more money. <laughs> I'm not lying. 
Annie, I know you don't want to join in, but these people, like, and it, and the, and you know, when you say to me, "How is that still in me?" Wow, God, you've opened a vein here, right? <laughs> I always start these things going, don't say it, Grace, don't say it. And say then I'm it. Like, pull, pull up a chair, right, I've got more things to say. Um, okay, the gap between me and people that came from very, very nice backgrounds, it never goes. Now, it might seem mm. like it does when you see me and, you know, I earn very good money, I own property, all these things, you know, I, I kind of, I look the part, yeah. I'm on telly, mm-hmm. but... For anybody like me who's made money, the gap will never really go because, for example, there's no property coming to me, right? right. Yeah. There's there's no there's no there was no inheritance coming to me. There was never mm. there was never that cushion, right? Mm. Mm. Whereas people who were around me in their forties who had that, mm. you know, first of all, they probably had a really big wedding that their parents paid for Mm. and then they were helped onto the housing ladder and then they had more houses coming to them so Mm. what I'm saying is these gaps never go Mm. if you come from my background you'll keep on feeling it you know and as you age you're then at the mercy of the government to look after you Whereas everybody around me in their forties and their fifties and their sixties is probably sitting on all the on all the inter, the generational wealth that's trickled yeah. down, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gosh, this is all very serious. I have been through a stage recently where my parents have been dying, which mm. is a very normal stage in life. But because I am from a very working class background with no money, no property, no nothing to sell, we were we did it through the NHS, you yeah. know, and that is a very different thing. To people that are that have always had a, a spare million sitting somewhere, because mm. when the shit hits the fan for those people, they chuck money at the project, the problem. Right. At least, God forbid, at least I did have some money, you know, because mm. I could throw it a bit. But I do, I do notice this. There's still a little bit of me that's just a little girl in Curragh, because, mm. you know, I'm kind of, you know, I'm late forties now, and my friends are all kind of casually telling me that they've just inherited a massive house on the mm. Isle of Wight and I'm like shit mm. how does how how are you still ahead of me mm. how <laughs> oh yeah. your dad's died and left you four million how <laughs> so yeah. it keeps me very focused mm. and but there's always a bit of me that kind of is still the little girl from Curragh and I kind of love it though you yeah. know it keeps me it keeps me focused and it keeps me very grounded that mm. I am that person. It keeps me very grateful as well. Yeah, yeah. In the book, you talk about your childhood. You talk about, I turned my mother's hair silver with anger in, angela- in adolescence. You talk about the rave years. It just gets yes. a little paragraph that it feels like that could be an entire book in itself. Oh, you, God, you know, yeah. walking yeah. home from waves in the morning in your bare feet through fields yes. and losing yes. entire, you know, weekends um, yeah. whilst you're still in school. But let's get to this first change, Grace. So the first change that you cited is leaving Carlisle and moving to Glittering Media London. <laughs> Tell me. I mean, there is the most incredible story in the book that, that is feels very kind of... Um, representative of everything you've spoken of so far which is 
your trip to, is it Cosmo or Marie Claire? The Cosmo, when oh you go God. to the posh restaurant with the editor. Yes. Well, that was one of the first times that I'd ever seen posh people, I suppose. I went to uni in Scotland and did, yeah. at 18, did an English lit degree and started entering competitions, writing competitions. Uh, I mean, this was before the internet, before blogs and like being able to put your shit out online and say, look, here I am. Mm. The way that you could get noticed was to enter competitions, really. And I entered one at Cosmopolitan and I won it. And they invited me to meet Marcel Dargy Smith the editor, who's this impossibly glamorous woman who you would see, she would often appear on like breakfast television or whatever, looking just amazing, you know. And yeah, I came down to the, it was at the Groucho, which to anyone listening is is a private, it's an unmarked private members club in Soho. There was, I don't know if this changed now, there was no sign that said this is the mm. Groucho Club because it's very secret. Mm. And I got there. So what year was this? This was about 1995. No, God, it would have been about 93. Anyway, we're kind of going into the kind of, the Groucho was where Damien Hurst and yep. like Blur and everybody mm-hmm. was hanging out and it was just this epicenter of debauchery and coolness. And, and you knew boy. all about it in advance. Like you, you, were, you oh, were so obsessed with it, weren't you, as a I, young woman? Was, as a young woman, I yeah. I was I followed all this from afar, mm. you know, buying the Guardian on a Monday when there was a job section, like looking for a job advert that said, "Wanted new Julie Birchall character to begin immediately." <laughs> Obviously, there was no job. There was no. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm here. Yeah. There was no job for that, uh, and yeah, so I came down to the Groucho. And just, I just remember sitting at that table and and there was lots of other girls there. I thought, I foolishly thought I was getting a one-on-one, but there was lots of yeah. other young girls there kind of talking about gap year, and which I, back then I had no idea. I was just really, I was really grateful that I was bloody, that I was even at uni, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I didn't have any, this plan to just go and not work. What the hell would I live on, you know? Uh, and people talking about sailing. Yeah, yachts. Yeah. People talking about, do you sail, Grace? And I'm like, what? How, how would you sail? And, like, also, and also just the food, <laughs> the culinary aspect, like getting served this kind of plate of really rare bloody lamb. Oh, rack of lamb. Which, oh my God. Uh, so yeah. in the book, I talk about how this rack of lamb came through the door and sat down in front of me and we'd all had our kind of meals chosen for us. And... And it arrived and I just thought, I have no idea yeah, how to, to set about this. Yeah. I don't know how to get the lamb from between the ribs and the, and it's bloody anyway. And I'm very interested in how working class people find a lot of restaurants, spaces, just like it's not for them. Yeah. Even if they had money. Mm. You know, I've watched this with my own family. When you go to them, come on, let's go to this amazing posh place. They're going, Grace, I- we don't want to go yeah you know because it's yeah. it's not us and mm. so i am and what are the things that make it that well it's stuff like this the fear of something coming through the door whereas the actual truth if you are listening to this rich people don't give a damn about that mm. if something came through the door and they didn't recognize it they'd probably they'd more likely blame the waiter mm. they go what's this this isn't how i ordered it take it away they yeah. wouldn't think at all about it um 
Yeah, so that was one of my first trips to London and I was promised work experience at Cosmo, but I didn't get it. And it's a very poignant moment because after that trip to the Great Show, you go off and you get an an all-day breakfast in in John Lewis (laughs) or one of those big department stores, BHS, and you have a little cry. I did have a little cry. Yeah, understandably, because that's all your dreams and suddenly you're like, well, this I don't belong in this world or whatever. But you make a big shift then in in terms of a change of attitude to London and how you were going to approach it. Tell Tell me what you kind of, what changed after that? I realised that uh, there was a lot of things about my life and my past that people didn't need to know. Yeah. That was the first thing. So mm. I'd, I stopped talking about my background. Mm. I shoved my middle name into my name to make my name longer. Yeah. So I insisted on the masthead of Marie Claire when I first got an editorial assistant job that I was Grace Georgina Dent. Incredible. And it just made it bigger, mm. you know? And so that was another thing. And I just started lying about that. I, I realized that the answer is always yes. Can you do this? Yes. Can you do shorthand? Yes. Can you type? I absolutely can. Yeah. Do you know how to use, I mean, going back, do you know how to use a fax machine? Yes. Yeah. Can you be here for another five weeks? Yes. You know, even though you've got nowhere to live. And yeah. I say in the book that, I was determined to stay, because I got in on an internship at Marie Claire and I was absolutely determined that I wasn't leaving, right? Mm. I got there and the minute I got through that door and there was, you know, all the models were arriving and I was booking castings and mm. like, mm. I was just dog's body going and getting mm. people's, you know, dry cleaning, dry cleaning yeah. without a ticket and all these things. But it was the epicenter of, again, Britpop, 90s mm. cool, cool mm. Britannia, it was at the point where Liam and Patsy were on the front of magazines and I'm in this ma- I'm in this magazine house. And as I always say, the Labour got in mm. uh, at that point and it was about 97 and people were going, oh, things can only get better. And I was like, how the fuck can things get better than this? I'm from Currock and we're all fucking drinking champagne. What? There's a loaded, free. Yeah. there's a party tonight, and loaded magazine are having it, and we're all going, and it's just full of fit boys, and like every time the door opens, gifts arrive. Things can only get better. What? And I was like, I'm not bloody leaving. No way. Um, and they kept at one point, they kept saying that they had to keep the internship free for about four or five weeks because Chris Patton's daughter was arriving. Back from and I remember that or something. And I was just like, okay, so this is how it works, does it? And these CVs kept arriving of like these women called like, you know, Fenella Ponsington Smythe, who's, and it would say, my mummy asked you to get in, to get me in, t- in touch with you because do you remember you were at uni together and it would be so fabulous. And I was like, right, I'm going to be completely honest. I started putting them in the shredder. I mean, <laughs> she put them in the shredder. It's like... I, I I remember feeling like alive as I just went. It's <laughs> like you have to write again, bitch. <laughs> so yeah, sometimes you got. But that's what I mean. You had all that in you, right? Yes. You had it all in you, but it took going to London and kind of seeing yourself. So basically, like like you said, you didn't know that you were working class till you went to London, and then seeing yourself in the in the context of London, you're like. 
okay, I'm not like them. So I'm going to have to like them. put up a different type of fight here. I was, and that is what makes people like me so frightening because we're not going. <laughs> you, you, call, you call it not weed. You said I was in like I'm not like, weed. I'm I like not, not yes. weed. I'm like not weed. I got in and it's the same with a lot of us. We're not going anywhere. No. You can you can make me a trending topic on Twitter as many times as you like. Like it'll be sad. I won't like it. But what do you think I'm gonna do? Just stop, right? <laughs> what do you think do you think I'm going back to Kurok? <laughs> no. So and that's what makes people like me so terrifying because you know, I'm still here like 27 years later because I saw that life. I saw over the fence and I started to observe so many things happened at Marie Claire mm. that I that I thought silly things like when I got there, I realized that a lot of the girls that worked in fashion were having their birthday parties in a private room at the Groucho. Now this and I thought, how are they doing that? Because I would be totting it up in my head and going, mm. but that costs about however many thousands to, mm. you know, and I literally, I, my birthday party was, you know, at the a roped off section in a, in a rotten parrot in Acton, mm. you mm. know, mm. Yeah. <laughs> if, and there was so many things that happened there that made me go, ah, uh-uh. mm. I'm, I'm not, they're not, they're not getting rid of me mm. because I knew also that um, I like hard work. And I, I liked to be in that office, nipping about, doing stuff. I didn't write. I didn't write anything when I was there. I left when they started suggesting to me that, that I was quite bright and maybe I should go and think about doing a degree. And I was like, I've got a degree. I've already done I've a got, degree. That's, I've already yeah, done yeah. <laughs> So I went freelance. I approached lots of other magazines mm. and just said, again, oh God, this is, sounds terrible. Fib in. You know, I went to a lot of the women's weeklies mm-hmm. and they were like, where are you? Are you? I'm at Marie Claire. Are you writing there? Yes, I am. Wasn't. Mm. Um, I've been writing a lot of uni. Uh, and then they said, OK, so can you do next week to maybe do five shifts covering for the deputy yeah. features editor? Yes. You know what I mean? And I would just go and yeah. do it and just think, if you put your shoulders back, and carry around a, a notepad, nobody ever challenges you. It's, it's also, it's, it's kind of what you're doing is you are growing a sense of entitlement that didn't exist yes. before, that everyone yes. else has already. Yes. Let me ask you something, Grace, about just your identity at this point, because in the book, you're just loving all the trappings that come with this job, like the first class trips, all the free stuff, all the parties, like you said. That was a fundamental change in my life, actually. The first time they the first time I ever went first class anywhere on a plane. Right. Mm. I do say it structurally changes you at a DNA level, right? You will never be the same again. The moment you turn left on that plane and you sit on a chair by yourself and people give a shit about you and start coming up going, would you like some more soft squashy socks and perhaps a lovely glass of champagne? And you're like, suddenly it's like, I'm never, please never, never. never It's so, it is, 
that was one thing that got me. Sometimes it takes people an entire kind of adulthood to come back and embrace where they're from. And they're kind of running away from it a little bit. Yes, we know you were physically running away. Was there a sense of kind of mentally running away from where you came from as well in terms of class? Do you think you wanted to be posh? Were you trying to kind of own that for a while? Um, I've always known that I would never be posh. People sometimes assume I'm posh by the way that I look and things, but I've always been very realistic about the idea of poshness. Yeah. Um, I think that people with money and the upper middle classes, I think they like to have you around, but they're Mm. never going to marry you, right? Mm. Because Mm. that's the the way they keep their their, their wealth. Stock pure. The way they keep their stock pure. So I was always very realistic about it. I never mm. tried to date them. I'm always really surprised when a model that I know, and she married into a really, really classic British family. And she's from like somewhere right rough up north. And I always think, how does that work? Mm. Because surely they're all eyeing her suspiciously and yeah. thinking, she's, yeah. you know, she's going to she's gonna, she's gonna divorce him and take the money. Um so I know I never I never wanted to be posh. I do think that I definitely went through a stage with my family where I think like everybody does when they leave of then go, being kind of resentful and sniffy about mm. ev- where I came from. Mm. You know, it's just a small town. Don't need to go back. You know, not seeing your parents from like for six months on end because you're just far too busy to go and see them and. The other thing, more importantly, is when I started to make money and have access to all these lovely things, assuming that my family would want it to. Now, that's the big mistake you make as, yeah. as a working class I've person. That is a, that's a world of heartache. Mm. It's a world of heartache because mm. the thing that, that people don't often accept about a, a lot of the working classes is they don't bloody want to be mm. at, sh- at shutters the amount, the amount on the of beach. Years I've, I've said to my parents, just just travel another airline. That's not yeah. Ryanair. Well, yeah, Ryanair's yeah. great. It's never late. It's that exactly. all the way. They're happy in their space. I think that a lot of working class people, they don't want to jump a class. They don't want to be middle class. They What they want is more money, quite rightfully, to do mm. the things that they like doing. Mm. This is a very kind of sensitive thing to try and explain because... People come at you and go, oh, are you trying to say that working class people don't want nice things so they shouldn't strive? No, I'm, I'm not. I'm saying something more complex than that. Yeah. I spent All the money. years. Yeah. I, they, 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 my, you know, my family love a chunk of money, but mm. they're not going to say, oh, I'm so glad we got that thousand pounds. Let's go for a weekend at Babington House. It's so much about belonging. I feel and yeah. being comfortable belonging somewhere. And yeah, you can have loads of cash and still just live the way you're living but have more choices basically it's that isn't it i'll give you an an example with so with my mother yeah as i made more money and got you know had these lovely windfalls that come in when you're working in media and you work in freelance you get these checks and i'd go mum where do you want to go let's go anywhere where do you want to go we can go you obviously you'd start would you want to go to the caribbean absolutely not do you want to go? Why don't we get a villa in like Gran Canaria? Oh, it's quite far and it'll be too hot. And she would wheedle you down and down and down until you were at Blackpool. 
every time, right? And this is a running joke in our family now. Now, God, you know, she's gone. We just all sit there going, Blackpool this year, guys? Because my mother loved Blackpool. She would get us all to go, that was her happiness, right? Mm. If she could round us all up from round the country and we would meet her and be in Blackpool, that was her joy, right? And she mm. did that all of her life. She didn't bloody want to go to Miami, you know, she'd want to go and stay in Miami, Soho House, Miami. She found, I once took her to a Malmaison. Right. And she was really freaked out by it. I remember we went into the, to get coffee or something. She was just looking at it going, why is this coffee so expensive? And also, mm. why is everyone being so nice to us? Because we was like proper service, you know? Yeah, yeah. My mother's favourite type of day out was to go to B&M or Home Bargains. You know, she loved it. I loved that. So yeah. Toby Carvery, these things yeah. made my family really happy. When yeah. I, and, and, I mean, I'm talking about the 90s as well, you know, these, mm. and into the noughties when I was kind of coming back like Billy Big Bollocks going, let's all go to this Michelin star restaurant in Cumbria that, mm. you know, most people would only go once in their life. I can go there this Sunday. Let's get mm. a table. And they'd be like, why are we spending money on that? They don't mm. care. So did I ever want to be posh? I knew I would never be able to. And my family didn't bloody resolutely want it. So, mm. you know, I didn't. But, you know, I, I kind of love talking about this because when I think about these things, that was my family happy. Yeah. Or, you know, because, my, you know, my mom and dad aren't here. And, and I, I look back now and I think, God, oh, my God, I would give anything to just get off the train in Carlisle and go up to their little flat they were in when they were retired and get in mm. my mother's, you know, t car, which would just be full of stuff for the tip mm. and go to go to Toby Carvery at four o'clock in the afternoon and sit and, you know, have a glass of, I'm trying to think, what well, you know, like really, really warm Merlot. Mm. <laughs> of a sticky bottle you know oh god you miss these things normally being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So you cite your mom and losing your mom as your as your yeah. big change in adulthood and yeah. um, being forced to consider your own mortality oh god i mean look i my mother died february the 1st 2021 right and she eventually died right she'd been <laughs> quite a laugh i'm sorry i've got a laugh. Yeah, yeah she'd been scheduled to die for a long time but she right. was far too far too busy right yeah. Far, she had far too many things to buy on the shopping channels. Right? <laughs> My mother, she absolutely loved um, what QVC. That kind oh of stuff. God, QVC. Yeah, Q loved QVC. I will, you know, when my mother was lying on her deathbed in, and she would, if she could hear this, she would laugh her head off. Right, 
in January when she was literally breathing her last I'd be sitting on the side of the bed talking to her about stuff and then the door would ring and it would be stuff that she'd ordered off QVC (laughs) mum where are you what is this she'd be like it's just a lovely pair of shoes I saw last night (laughs) so she (laughs) gives her joy I love her I just let her oh my god I let her I just let her get on with it um my mother was a force of nature yeah, uh, she, she was amazing. Just a kind of really tall Amazonian Cumbrian woman. You know, she wasn't an academic at all. She had never she didn't have a career. But you would go out to school and she, you'd come back and she'd moved every bit of furniture in the house just with her bare hands. <laughs> one of those women yeah you come in and like all the television and everything was just facing in a different way she was always the mother that when we were playing netball at school in the primary school she'd be like i'll get you all to kingmore primary don't worry turn up in like a kind of a maxi car and just bundle like 11 girls into the back and set off she was funny and sarky and you know she got cancer once and managed you know i nursed her through that and she managed to get through that and then it came back um, at ten, oh, 10 years later and when it came back I didn't think that she had very long Yeah. but she just kept going on and on and on and on we always say you know, she's just kind of too big for death really too much to yeah. do um, too many things to order too many too things much shopping to do too, she had to go to B&M she had to go to <laughs> and Grace tell me like because you, you talk about in the book this move from going to London and going back to Cumbria yeah. And I'm fascinated by that. Kind of what was the catalyst for that decision to go and care for your parents and what you think about it now? Like how you feel about that phase in your life? I mean, God, going back and being there through my mother's decline and my mother dying and being there was, it's a massive privilege. Uh, it was hell. If you can do it and, you, and you've, got the, um, if you've got the time and the resources and the effort and the energy... I'm really, really glad I did it. I'm glad I was there. Why did I do it? Um, I absolutely had to. I was I, There was no way that I couldn't go there and be elbow deep in it. I had to do it. It's mm. too much to do. At the very thick of it, my father was last stage before care dementia. Absolutely as, oh my God, absolutely madman where you have to god i'm sorry lock them in the house and yeah you yeah. can't it's you so know unpredictable yeah oh god it's it's constant and you've nocturnal you know and my mother was terminally ill and i was determined that we would stay together as long as possible mm. the thing is it's really difficult to break a family up you know at that stage it was very much like last stage before a divorce or something where everybody goes in the separate ways and I was very determined that if there was just a house that we could all be in and there was just a dining table that <clears throat> that we could all sit around then there would still be a structure of family life until yeah. the absolute last minute when it all stopped so um, uh, I was going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards I lived on the uh, west coast line yeah. got to say I've got an amazing brother who was also, yeah. you know, doing proper the proper donkey work. He was there as well. And then eventually I just thought, no, I have to have like proper eyes. I have to have 
eyes on it, you know, all yeah. the time because it becomes this uh, just a, a never-ending things to do list. I just wanted to, I, I just, I just wanted to do it. I wanted to be there. Mm. There was something very lovely about just making making breakfasts and making dinners and washing sheets and that's how you say I love uh, you isn't it? Yo, doing the laundry oh my making God. the dinner yeah do you know yeah the last place I lived with my mother because we got rid of the bigger place when my dad went and then we went into a tiny flat and when right. I and I kind of spent a little bit of time in London again then but then I knew she was on her way out and um, I just packed a case one day and got on the train and said to my bloke and to everybody I don't know when I'm coming back mm. you know I just don't I just don't know and this is it now and then um I got there and there was just this like little room and I just kind of made it into like a little student bedroom and then you get in touch with the NHS and you tell them that you're opting for a home death which is very much like a home birth because wow. then you get all the paperwork yeah and you tick all the boxes to say that you know not, and you have to have all the do not revive conversations and the God. dangerous drugs arrive to put them out their misery in the last minutes and that's when the shit gets real. God, fucking hell. And it's all sitting behind the couch and and then I was just there. I was just there for months. Like, administering morphine. Um, well, the last stage was about nine weeks. Right. The more, you know, the, the last stage of, you know, yeah. when we knew. Yeah. Uh, but look, you know, what I'm describing here is coming to millions of us. We just don't talk about it. Of course. You know, that kind of, that line, they died peacefully in their sleep, surrounded by family, right? Mm. Mm. I mean, it's just bullshit, right? Because mm. <laughs> the last 24 hours is not that. It's mm. not that, you know, even with the best will in the world. Um, I always say this, I just went, I always think, if my mother could have walked in to the flat in the last 24 hours and saw what was going on, she would have wet herself laughing because it was just pure, just like horror, you know? Right. People running around and people arriving and like, oh God, and you know, and her making a noise and, and it was just, oh God, it was just horrific. But God, I'm really glad I was there. How does it change how you feel about living life? The rest of yours it's really difficult sometimes to understand what the hell I'm doing it all for now because your mother doesn't matter what relationship you have with your mother if you're still on speaking terms no one's more interested in your life than your mother nobody like believe me those calls that you're screening from your mother you realize that you your mother wants to hear your stories you know she wants to <laughs> She wants to hear the shit that's happening at work. She wants to know about your yeah. partner. She wants to know what you had for dinner. And then she and everything that happens to you, your mother's you, you, every promotion, every contract, every pregnancy, mm. every whatever it mm. is, your mum's like. And once that person's gone, I do feel a bit like I just want to ring her all the time to go, you'll never guess. And then she's not there. You know, yeah. my mother loved the gossip. She loved she loved the fact that I was like in MasterChef and in all mm. these shows and mm. and that she, the people that she read about in the paper I knew the backstory mm. so like I it's it's really hard um it's really made me feel like everyone's shifted up a gear now and I'm I'm the matriarch 
Wow. Like I, I'm in charge now. Like I run Christmas. Well, you took charge. You took charge in that whole scenario, <laughs> didn't you? You kind of went, right, this is what's going to happen. And you did it and you took charge. I, so people probably are happy when someone takes charge in that way. Happy to be led. You know, I just, yeah, it's funny. You kind of, you constantly compare things that happened when your mother was this age and you keep going, oh God, that's me now. Mm. It's kind of been like rocket fuel as well to me with regards to working because I do realise now that time is finite. It Mm. is finite. Um, Are you working more or less, Grace, now? More. Yeah. More, more. Throwing yourself in. Yeah, I was. I, w- I went back to work immediately. I mean, yeah. I was working when she was literally dying. I was like, I had like a, in my little room, I had this microphone set up. I did some Radio 4 shows and things like that. I did some voiceovers. Yeah. Because I just kind of had to keep it going. I was determined mm. that no, and I didn't tell anybody what was happening. And then... um she when she died on february the first and i'd had this project on the back burner which was the comfort eating podcast and i just remember after about nine days in the gap waiting for the funeral i just said let's do it let's Let's just start Mm. you know i'm sure annie i bet you would do the same yeah like just like let's do it yeah just put it in and we'll start taking meetings and the fear of the fact that you know stephen fry was booked to come to my house kind of stopped me thinking about it you know yeah yeah i don't think when you lose your parents i don't think that the grief ever stops i mm. think it maybe changes shape but it's just part it's, of you it's just there you know yeah. i don't feel like i've i've done, i've never really had a proper cry and yeah. never really but god you know as i always say to my family i'm the captain now <laughs> you're steering the ship Oh, Grace. The last change question. You have cited retiring from partying after 25 years. Very interested in this. It's probably longer than 25 years. It's longer. I started partying when I was 14. But you did it really well and you did it really hard. (laughs) I gave it my all. You did. I was a high impact player. You could win trophies. For party. Look, you are one of the only people that's ever mentioned that bit in the book, which I skirt over in about two pages mm. about raving. Well, I, I saw a lot of similarities between me and you in the book, yeah. um, and and that was one of them. One yeah. of them. I drank and partied yeah. in a very Cumbrian working class way from the age of fourteen. And then when I got to uni, I partied like a 90s student mm-hmm. and clubbing and partying and living in Scotland. Oh, my God. I lived in Scotland in the 90s and the, the, the sub club and resurrection raves. Yeah, and like the arches, the this. arches and colours mm. and like, you know, 16 hour John Digweed sets where mm. playing stupid things, you know, I bloody love Scotland, but like they love to party. Yeah. I moved from that to Media London, the home of the free bar, the home of the um, high-functioning drug user. Yeah. You know, uh, my first husband was mm. in the music industry, mm. so I was a journalist working in media and with 
the music industry as my life, as my kind of home yeah. life. Yeah. Partying, partying, partying. Anybody that's younger that's listening to this, I'm not saying to everybody, oh my God, stop doing everything you're doing. You know, do whatever you want. Have a, have yeah. a bloody, yeah. you're young, have a good time. However, if you think that there's a point that your group around you will naturally grow out of this, mm. there isn't, right? There isn't a cutoff point. So mm-hmm. there's you, always someone older who's still caning it. There's always someone older who's still caning it. Absolutely caning it. And I had absolutely wanted to live a more sober or a sober lifestyle yeah. for years. You know, I mm. remember in my thirties saying, "I just, I just, I just don't, I just don't want to lose days of my life mm. anymore." Mm. I drank in a very acceptable British way, mm. which means all the time, everywhere, you know? And then I I moved into working in food, which means everywhere I go, I'm like, oh, Miss Grace Dentism, Sandra Bottle of Bolly. And mm. um, when my mother was dying, I was definitely doing that thing where I just have a glass of wine on a night, have a two, you know? And then yeah. obviously after she died, I was like, God, you know, I'm just... I just was sick of like having like gin and tonics on a night. I just want to get away from it. And people were like, oh, well, come on, you're in grief. That's okay. It's acceptable. It's like to another level. And then in the end, I just thought, I just want to be free. And when I say that, that's it. I want to be free because we're so trapped in alcohol in British society. We're so trapped. You can't. Yeah. It's like more acceptable to, mm. to say to your friends that you had a massive weekend and you were like mm. you were out on a 48 hour bender after a wedding mm. than to go I'm not drinking on Tuesday night <laughs> so um, I'll come and I'll come down and see you but I'll have a coffee people would rather they can't handle it <laughs> they, they, take, handle it's, it. they take personal affront at it it's like a personal offence isn't it it's like well why why aren't you drinking what I just don't you know I want my time back I need to live i see giving up booze as and it sounds cheesy you've got to think what you're gaining and not what you're losing yeah we started talking about the grout show right and how all i wanted to do was be there Mm. nothing good has ever happened in any private members club in london after 9 15 right (laughs) get your ass home that's it that's that's (laughs) that's the word that's very very true wouldn't swap a single second of it but mm. babe i'm too old like mic drop i'm I out you. i hear you do i sound like a boring twat no you sound amazing <laughs> I, I i i wish you a lifetime of clarity and living every day to its full potential and um i just thank you so much grace i, I feel like we need a part two part three part four but i really 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 i'm so grateful to you thank you babe thanks for having me thank you so much to grace do share this around uh to anyone who you think could be inspired or just relate to grace's life and work and and, and get some kind of joy out of her story and do please go and get Grace Dent's memoir, Hungry, a memoir of wanting more. Honestly, it's such a beautifully written, kind of gut-wrenching book. And uh, I think you'd really enjoy it. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Okay, next week I will be welcoming to Changes a woman who goes by the name Lady Unchained. She is a poet, performer, broadcaster and mentor, but also 
a black woman who spent 11 months in prison and five months tagged after being sentenced to two and a half years for GBH with intent for being involved in a fight at a nightclub. She was 20 years old, about to launch her own business and with no former convictions. She didn't believe she was the type to go to prison. Her story is shocking for many reasons and she wants to prove there is life after prison. In her own words, she says, my life ended and began with a prison sentence. I got tired of waiting for change, so I became the change. I chose to be unchained. So that's Lady Unchained on Changes next week. A completely riveting conversation that will have you on the edge of your seats. Thank you so much for listening. As always, let us know what you thought. Hit me up on Instagram, Annie McManus. And Changes is produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. Thank you so much. Take care and we'll see you next week. Thank you.